0: Welcome to DIA today, Democracy in America today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Gorman. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Well, we're back at it, Dave. Season
1: two. Nice uh, month-long break, which is the way of academics. We're soft. Right. Only beaten by the summer breaks and which you take three or four months off. But uh, it was good. Good to have a break. Uh, and uh, nothing happened, of course, in between our last show and this. Uh, we'll have nothing to cover, correct? Uh,
0: it's good to be able to ease back into things, you know, kind of get your sea legs back and, and not have to worry about stirring up controversy or dealing with difficult topics. So, yeah, we're, we're grateful. Well, you know season two, one of the nice things about having your own podcast is that the, the suits can't cancel you so so we get to declare season two begins whenever we want it to begin, and it begins now, and uh, they can't cancel us and so far, no one's tried to de platform us so so far, so good. Uh, we are going to do a little bit of a different format as we mentioned in our last season one broadcast, so we're going to. Give a little more time up front to the required reading and then use the headlines as kind of a pivot to take the required reading and apply it to the circumstances of our day kind of defined a little more broadly than just say the last week's news. But we're also going to introduce a brief segment at the beginning here that allows us to interact with the immediate news of the day, calling it leading off, uh, which is our little clever pun. So we're going to read the first paragraph or lead as the journalists call it of a key news story from the week, and talk about that for a minute or two. And then we'll transition into the required reading. Dave's got a great program for us, taking us through democracy in America and the history of political thought. So relatively unambitious uh, agenda for us, but looking forward to that. So leading off, the story of the week is not a surprise. This is the AP's opening paragraph of their article reporting on the impeachment of Donald Trump, President Donald Trump was impeached by the U.S. House for a historic second time Wednesday, charged with incitement of insurrection over the deadly mob siege of the Capitol in a swift and stunning collapse of his final days in office. Well, we were out on the road
1: and I called my father-in-law, who was uh, about to uh, lose it, uh, just wondering what had happened. He was watching C-SPAN and, and watching the certification of the vote. And he's, he's asking us, did you see this? Did you see this? And, and uh, here we are in a car, not knowing what's going on. So um, my father-in-law, a very nice man, uh, center left, definitely center left, and uh, was incredibly uh, upset uh, by what he saw. And uh, it led to a really interesting conversation that we had over the next half an hour or hour about where things are, and, and uh, I wasn't surprised by what happened on Wednesday. I think we've had a conversation over the course of our first season where we kind of see things like this happening, and nothing seems to surprise us anymore. This kind of recklessness, uh, the movement toward a mob t- mentality. I think we've referenced Lincoln's Lyceum address at least three or four times in uh, season one. So. Uh, not Not good events but but not events that uh, I think that if you 're tracking carefully would catch you uh, too far off guard
0: yeah, I think that's right, and unfortunately, you know this has been building really over the course of many months or you could say years, but then also the crescendo since the election and just the repeated refusal of President Trump to acknowledge his defeat to concede anything to the underlying realities or the or the obligation even to prove his argument, right, to make a case that's actually defensible, followed up with evidence, and could be demonstrated in court. And then just the fanatical response of some of his supporters to all this, which we'll get into a little bit more later on, that led um, to this, I think, absolutely necessary second impeachment. Uh, We'll see how the trial proceeds from here. Sounds like it might begin before the inauguration of Biden and then continue past that. But, um, you know, this is a, a terrible end to the presidency, but hopefully this is going to sober some people up. Now that that's not guaranteed for sure. And, you know, we've got talk of more conflict this weekend at various state capitals and talk of events surrounding the inauguration. So we'll see what the next week brings. Hopefully we're not talking about more stunning events uh, a week from now as we move ahead with the next episode. But you know that, that seems like uh, it's gonna really take some leadership. Uh, I hope that Joe Biden will be up to that in his inaugural address and, and that there'll be bipartisan voices that are able to help us move forward in a more productive way.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that will happen though because I see a lot of stirring of the pot uh, this past week, uh, this drive for impeachment uh, when he'll be leaving office. Uh, January 20th, um, anyway, I, I, I just wonder, is this an event where um, people are responding to it in a way that will lead toward that peace and unity, or uh, will it allow you know some people to accumulate that much more power and, and think of it as a political play, uh, rather than uh, something that uh, really does what we need, is, is, is urges calm uh, and uh, unity and reconciliation. With a republic that's really having a crisis, is in a great crisis right now. So I, that's, that's what I fear, Matt. I, I don't see some of these responses as being reasonable responses grounded in a love of law more than taking advantage of the situation that we're in. So.
0: Well, we'll have more to say on that, no doubt, as we move along, not only today, but in the weeks to come. Let's now turn to our required reading. So, Dave, you're going to lead us through this, the first of our discussions of democracy in America and the history of political philosophy.
1: Yeah, so if you were listening last month, we said that in season two, what we want to do is is make our way through perhaps the greatest book ever written on the United States, and perhaps the greatest book also ever written on democracy, on on the modern age in which we live, uh, namely Tocqueville's Democracy in America. So the game plan over the next 15 weeks is to assign uh, to our readership, our listenership, I should say, 15 to 20 pages from... Tocqueville's Democracy in America each week, and then we'll cover over 15 courses or modules, Uh, we'll cover the entire reading. Secondly, what we'll do along the way is we'll have an adjacent commentary on a great work uh, from political thought or philosophy or theology that speaks into the same issues that Tocqueville is covering for that um, for that part of his text uh, one of the wonderful things about Tocqueville's democracy in America as many commentators have said is that it all fits together there's a, a there's a great intention to the writing there's a logic as you move from one section to the next so hopefully you'll, you'll see some of that that logic and and if everyone's ready to kind of have a, a college course over a podcast that's what we'll be aiming at so that said, our assignment for this, First episode of season two was the author's introduction to democracy in America, or Tocqueville's introduction to democracy in America. And what I want to say, real quickly here, about this author's introduction is that I think two things are being introduced by Tocqueville at the beginning of his work. The first is the subject matter, which is this great democratic revolution that's taking place throughout the world and that has a, a certain consequence in Europe. Tocqueville, of course, is a Frenchman, but also has it had a consequence, has been consequential uh, in the United States. Second subject that Tocqueville takes up in his introduction, I think is his own person. So it's an introduction not only to the subject matter, but an introduction to Tocqueville, the political thinker, the statesman, the philosopher. How should a thinker, statesman or philosopher deal with a subject uh, as, as filled with tension as the movement forward of democracy as it, as it covers the world. So let me say a few things about both of those topics. The subject matter and Tocqueville himself. Tocqueville begins uh, in the page three of his introduction if you're, if you're using the um, Winthrop Mansfield translation which we're gonna reference throughout uh, this season. Nothing struck my eye more vividly in looking at the United States than the equality of conditions. This gives a direction, he says, to the public spirit, the laws, the governing maxims, and the habits of the governed. Uh, This has been the case, I'll argue, not only in the United States, but in Europe, so much so that he believes that a great democratic revolution is taking place. So one of the things that he does, and I think this is something that speaks to the beginning of of the show, is he says, "Well, what am I gonna do with this subject matter of a great democratic revolution? revolution taking place. And at the end of his introduction, he'll say, I'll, I end by pointing out myself, what a great number of readers will consider the capital defect in the work. This book is not precisely in anyone's camp. In writing it, I did not mean either to serve or to contest any party. I undertook to see, not differently, but further than the parties. And while they are occupied with the next day, I wanted to ponder the future. So Tocqueville is keen on trying to understand what this democratic revolution will mean for mankind, will mean for people living within Western civilization. And while you can get caught up in the events or newsreel of the day, think over a larger period of time, that macro level thinking of a century or two centuries or five centuries, and think what is opened up by the possibility of life becoming more democratic and what we might have to fear, what are some of the elements of democracy that might tend not towards flourishing, but might undermine that same flourishing. So Tocqueville has this kind of broad outlook. And it's with this broad outlook that he begins the introduction and looks back 700 years from the time that he's writing in the 1830s. He says, every single thing that's happened in the world over the past 700 years has led towards this growing, growing strength of the equality of conditions. Uh, whether it's um, elements that are taking place within the church that open up clerkships in, in the church uh, to those uh, of lower rank, civil laws that are coming into place, the growth in commerce that occurs between the 11th and 18th century, changes in education and literacy, the development of science, uh, the the development of the ability for uh, more and more people to own property. Quote, each new idea had to be considered as a seed of power put within reach of the people. So when he looks at these events, he says, and he's writing in a Christian age, he says, I've got to wonder here, is this movement over the last 700 years, is this democratic revolution, is this providential? Is this what God would have for the world. And in part, he says he writes the book Democracy in America under a spirit of terror because if this is God's doing, why should I or how can I as a human being, as a thinker, question what God would bring into the world? But interestingly enough, while he accepts the fact that you cannot stop democracy, he'll answer this question of whether he can still be reverent by saying the following. A new political science is needed for a world that is new. So what do we do as individuals seeing this change before us and noting that some of the change could be good, some of the change could be problematic? We have to try to figure out why the change is taking place. We have to figure out where we're going. We can't stop things that are moving in a certain direction he argues, to wish to stop democracy would then appear to be a struggle against God himself. But perhaps this new political science can direct this democratic revolution into its proper course. People in his age, Tocqueville argues, have not done this. He says the most powerful, most intelligent, and most moral classes of the nation have not sought to take hold of it so as to direct democracy. No one's had the courage and energy to seek something better. So I said this introduction is an introduction to the subject matter of a democratic revolution, but it's also an introduction to Tocqueville. What responsibility do we have as teachers of politics, as observers of the world, in a world that's moving in a certain direction? We have a responsibility to try to direct things in a better direction, to have the courage and energy to seek something better, and to use whatever platform we have to try to encourage that positive change. Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, is an attempt, I think, by one of the greatest minds in the modern world to look at where we're tending and to make things better.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, you point out some real interesting challenges as it applies to us. We think about this idea of seeing beyond the present day and not getting caught up in the party squabbles, I think you know, as challenging as it was in de Tocqueville's day, I think it's probably more so in ours where the, the tyranny of the immediate is, is so palpable. Anytime you get on the internet, anytime you're involved in email, you're on social media or whatever, and, and the need to comment on everything and to respond to everything. And, and where is the time to stick a step back or three steps back and reflect on the long trends that are underlying whatever it is we happen to be seeing in this moment, and, and who will give you the chance to, in some nuanced way, engage these issues in ways that might challenge party orthodoxies in every direction, right? where, where you're just not willing to repeat the pieties of the various groups that have clearly drawn their lines, this tribe over here and that tribe over there. We, we live in a, in a culture where there's just so little tolerance of that And as I say, it's so little time really for that sort of reflection. So I, you know, I think what Tocqueville does is give us an interesting model, which I think he, he then sees in some of his American subjects that he studies about taking this God ordained order as a fixed thing, but then operating within the freedom that God has actually given to human beings to charter course within the boundaries that he has established. And so this, political challenge that's emerging and in, in dealing properly with democracy is one where it will take uh, the best judgment, the most prudential wisdom and statesmanship and philosophical reflection in order to take this, this raging sea and provide some measure of order. So it's a blessing rather than a curse. You know, and when he closes the book, he, he talks about having a salutary fear of, of the future, you know, a healthy fear. And we, we know what that's like when, you know, you, you know, there's a, a due date coming up and so that forces you to concentrate and to work hard. You're not overwhelmed by the fear, but it's a healthy fear that that guides you to good habits and to do the thing, you know, you should do, but you might be otherwise too lazy to do. Um, but that's, that's the kind of impression that seems to inform the whole work, This salutary fear of the future. And I think that's very much applicable to our own day. Uh, that we need to have a, a right fear of the conditions in which we live, the, the hyper-democracy and all that attends that. Uh, and yet there's a healthy way to channel that following Tocqueville's guidance so that we are looking past the squabbles of the day and, and actually plotting a course for a more productive future. Agreed. And uh, one of the things then that you have to look at if if most people look
1: at newsreels and and change in an immediate fashion why do we do that and and can we overcome that kind of uh, cult of the immediacy and and Tocqueville doesn't believe that's going to happen right you're going to have partisans who are definitely going to try to stir the pot um, day by day and uh, they're not going to have that longer term approach and salutary fear that that is a good thing that leads to prudence and and foresight so who are these partisans that he wants to look uh, further uh, afield then So he he says kind of in the middle of of the introduction, he identifies these two groups. And I think this is gonna be very important identification, not only for our our first study today, but as we go through the next 15 weeks. The two groups are what he will call the lovers of Christianity on the one hand, and then the second group are the lovers of freedom. So here what he has to say about Christians. One still encounters Christians among us full of zeal, whose religious souls love to nourish themselves from the truth of the other life. Doubtless they are going to be moved to favor human freedom, the source of all moral greatness. Christianity, which has rendered all men equal before God, will not be loath to see all citizens equal before the law. But by a strange concurrence of events, religion finds itself enlisted for the the moment among the powers democracy is overturning and it is often brought to reject the equality it loves and to curse freedom as an adversary, whereas by taking it by the hand, it could sanctify its efforts. So Christians have a great role to play as the world becomes democratized. Equality rightly understood and applied, orderly freedom brought into being could lead to that which, what God, that which God wanted. However, that has not been the approach that many Christians, Toko would say in his age, have taken towards this revolution. So you have a group of people who are morally dependent upon the authority of God, who want to remain dependent on the political status quo of the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. But who are the other set of partisans? He then writes, alongside these men of religion, I discover others whose regard is turned toward earth rather than heaven. Partisans of freedom, not only because they see, it in the, see in it the origin of the noblest virtues, but above all, because they consider it the source of the greatest goods. They sincerely desire to assure its empire and to have men taste its benefits. I understand that they are going to hasten to call religion to their aid, for they must know that the reign of freedom cannot be established without that of mores, nor mores founded without beliefs. But they have perceived religion in the ranks of their adversaries, and this is enough for them. Some attack it and others do not dare defend it." So like the lovers of religion and Christianity who ought to be somewhat embracing of freedom, the lovers of freedom have rejected Christianity, religion, and morals. So this is a, a picture of the world that Tocqueville would see very clearly, uh, having family who had lived through the French Revolution where you had this one group, right? The traditionalists uh, who wanted political dependence and moral dependence of uh, fighting a set of revolutionaries who not only wanted to overcome the king and the nobility and the prior regime, but overcome all norms, all mores of the past. So the question for Tocqueville, is it possible to move forward and to bring together right, the lover of freedom and the lover of religion. And that will, in part, as we'll see, explain his turn uh, to events in the United States. So where do we find that later in the greeting uh, for this section of Democracy in America? After he gives his introduction to the work, he then talks about the external configuration in North America. He talks about this great river, the Mississippi River, that runs through North America in which God has kind of planted and and, uh, made open uh, for Americans the ability to come and to be able to live and to flourish in this new world. But it takes a certain type of person uh, to flourish in this new world. And what Tocqueville is going to do is he's going to emphasize the Puritans, the pilgrims who came to North America, and suggest that there is something within the nature of the pilgrims, the way they understand morality, the way they understand politics, that might be a way forward for democracy and for those living within a democratic age. What do the Puritans have going for them? They are people that believe that religion leads to enlightenment, and they likewise believe the observance of divine laws, Tocqueville writes, guides man to freedom. What I'm suggesting here, Matt, is that the Puritans um, have a, this kind of hybrid way of looking at the world where they're very, very dependent upon the moral authority of God and the word of God. But that still leaves them open to asking questions within the political realm. There are people who are morally dependent, yet at the same time politically independent. And it's going to be this admixture of moral dependence and political independence that provides kind of a, a proper ground for men to uh, inherit sovereignty over their own affairs and to perhaps be able to do democracy correctly, at least initially to do democracy correctly.
0: Yeah. And the key there is that the the freedom that they enjoy in the political realm is built upon a foundation of this moral dependence and therefore it's not a libertinism, it's a, it's a liberty that's, that's rightly understood within the context of their purpose as human beings and their care for one another, their, their love for God, their love for neighbor.
1: Yeah, and I, I have to read from from this section where he describes this, this Puritan people to end this, this discussion for, for today. He writes, I have already said enough to put the character of Anglo-American civilization in its true light. This is on page 43. Is the product and this point of departure ought constantly to be present in one's thinking. So he's alerting to us to, to think about this subject as we make our way through democracy in America of two perfectly distinct elements that elsewhere have often made war with each other, but which in America they have succeeded in incorporating somehow into one another and combining marvelously. I mean to speak of the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom. So Tocqueville alerts us to this, where is the spirit of religion in any given age and where is the spirit of freedom? And are they allies or are they enemies? And and you can tell a lot about where we are as a people if these two spirits work hand in hand for human flourishing. So Matt, what we see at the beginning of Tocqueville's work is this importance of providing a metaphysical view for his audience. Where are we in the world today? What does the present look like? How have we gotten here from the past and, and where are we tending? So this macro level or metaphysical view of the world. So the two corollary reading assignments that we had that I think go hand in hand with Tocqueville include Genesis, right, which is God's word telling us the beginning of the creation of the world and, and God's part in the creation of the world. And then secondly, Hesiod's Theogony that gives us a Greek or classical understanding of the way the world came into being. I'll read quickly from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God is at the front of all of creation. God in his moral agency creates it and creates something good what does our metaphysical picture of the world look like with a recognition of a God who created the world and created our place in it? It changes or should change everything that we do. It should change the way uh, that we recognize uh, where we're going, where we came from, why we're here, where we're tending. Uh, It provides a level uh, of, of, of knowledge for us so that in anything that we do, in any relationship that we have, in any job that we take, We understand it within God's creation, what God would have us do. So there's there's a a sense of kind of comfort that comes knowing that God is sovereign over all things. It doesn't mean that we won't have a level of sovereignty in this world, but it's always subservient to God's sovereignty over his creation. Compare that map quickly with Hesiod's uh, more mythological account of the beginning of the world a world that is, uh, comes out of chaos in which there are constant battles fought between gods and, and which uh, human beings by and large are what? Uh, we're the playthings uh, of the gods. We're the playthings uh, of Zeus. And we really have to deal with uh, most of the things that the gods bring into the world that upset our lives. So here I'll read a short passage from Hesiod. What's brought into the world at the creation? A night has bare hateful doom and black fate and death, and she bears sleep in the tribe of dreams, and again the goddess, murky night, though she lay with none, bear blame and painful woe, and the Hesperides, who guard the rich golden apples and the trees bearing fruit beyond the glorious ocean, also she bear the destinies and ruthless avenging fates, Clotho and Lachis, and Atropos, who give men at their birth both evil and good to have. And they pursue the transgressions of men and of gods. And these goddesses never cease from their dread anger until they punish the sinner with a sore penalty. And deadly night bear nemesis, indignation to afflict mortal men, and after her deceit and friendship and hateful age and hard hearted strife. But abhorred strife bear painful toil and forgetfulness and famine and tearful sorrows, fightings also, battles, murders, manslaughters, quarrels, lying words disputes, lawlessness, and ruin all of one nature. sounds a little bit like 2021 20, or a lot of human history, <laughs> but a, a different rendering, a different metaphysic of the world. And, and, and certainly all of those things mentioned in He are present in the world that we live in. Uh, but we look at them very differently. That's all that defines the world. There's not a creator God and there's not his moral agency and and not this asking of how we should live in this world. Where is Tocqueville? Uh, uh, Tocqueville is someone who will recognize all these spirits of the night uh, that upset uh, the world that we live in, but he's earnest in trying to figure out how we can make our way forward and find something redeeming in this experience uh, that we call life.
0: Yeah, the Bible began with Genesis 4, and we didn't know that God originally made things good and we didn't know that it was man that sinned and brought death into the world and all the evil that follows it, then Hesiod's account would be fairly reasonable, wouldn't it? Um, but, but we have a, a deeper understanding because we have Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We see the holiness, uh, the unity, the wisdom of God. We see the order that he established, and we see the way that men have broken that order. But then, of course, we also have the promise in Genesis 3 of the restoration of that order in the seat of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent in ultimately Christ's millennial kingdom, you see how the pagans struggle to make sense of the world that they observe. And of course, we would struggle to do the same, but to know that there's a deeper story revealed to us in the scriptures that gives us a more complete account of the beginning and the end uh, makes all the difference in between as we live out our life in this fallen world. Well, let's turn now to the headlines. And again, our our approach to the headlines this season is gonna be to try to think about how the instruction we've just gotten from the reading applies to current events, maybe broadly defined. And, you know, you think about the issue of the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom. And we think about some of the tensions perhaps today in our own politics, Where's the spirit of lawlessness coming from that seems to pervade our politics and our social life more broadly? And I think the easy answer would be to say, well, you know, religion's gotten weaker. And if religion is the thing that informs our freedom, then we're not surprised to find that, that freedom has been turned into license in various ways. And, and there's no doubt that that's part of the story. Uh, there's no doubt that that's part of the story. But there's more to the story because one of the challenges is that, at least some of the lawlessness that we've seen in the last few weeks has involved many Christians. Uh, David French, who's Christian commentator um, on the right, has a newsletter that comes out on Sunday where he kind of interacts with the latest issues concerned with the church. And uh, he called what happened on January 6th in Washington, D.C., uh, a Christian insurrection and, and emphasized the role of Christians in that and the point isn't that you know a right understanding of Christianity leads to insurrection or that every Christian endorsed this or anything of that sort but the the, the dominant feeling of the group uh, the, the music that was played even if you looked at the banners there were Christian symbols all over the place and he kind of challenges the reader a few paragraphs in and says are you still not convinced that it's fair to call this a Christian insurrection I would bet that most of my readers would instantly label the exact same event Islamic terrorism If Islamic symbols filled the crowd, if Islamic music played the loudspeakers, if members of the crowd shouted Allahu Akbar as they charged the Capitol. Um, and, And so this builds on a series of events, right? So you go back about a month before, you had what's called the Jericho March that took place on December 12th in Washington, D.C., which was connected in the sense that it was uh, likewise a protest against what were claimed to be sort of outrageous efforts to steal the election from President Trump. Um, The MC of that event was Eric Metaxas, a well-known Christian talk show host and author of a best-selling book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor of President Trump was the headliner, but there were a number of pastors and others that spoke and, and so, in the run-up to this, uh, Metaxas was on the Charlie Kirk show, and you know, Rod Dreher, who's a longtime friend of Metaxas, wrote about this appearance in the American Conservative, where Metaxas really invokes this strikingly apocalyptic language in describing what he took to be this this horrific injustice that is preventing President Trump from from a second term. So that, for example, uh, and you can. find the the link to the video in the show notes if you want to look at the video. I've watched it through myself. But about the ninth minute, he says, if you're not hopped up about the election being stolen from Trump, you are the German who looked the other way when Hitler was preparing to do what he was preparing to do. He says, unfortunately, I don't see how you could see it any other way. And a little bit earlier, he says, we need to fight to the death, to the last drop of blood, because it's worth it. And so there's sort of this martial military rhetoric, um, but also interwoven in all this is, is kind of a, a Christian theology uh, that, that God has some special role for President Trump. Not, not in the sense of Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained by God, but more than that. Toward the end, he starts talking about how this might be used to wake up the church. And he talks about everybody's praying and fasting like they never have before. And Dreher says, maybe God is doing something, just not what Trumpy evangelicals want him to do. He is surely exposing intellectual and theological rot, the kind that inspires Christian leaders to declare apocalypse, exhort believers to shed blood and prepare for martyrdom, and to denounce anyone who disagrees as devil-driven collaborators with history's greatest evil, all for a cause that the leader cannot even begin to explain. Now, it's important to note that this piece by Rod Dreher is from December 10th, 2020. So this is two days before the Jericho march and obviously almost a full month before the Capitol attack on January 6th. So he's not talking about what might happen. He's not anticipating violence. He's not blaming anybody for the violence that obviously happened after he's writing he is raising serious questions about the danger of this rhetoric and the way that it intersects with a right understanding of Christian theology. There's been this evangelical tolerance of of some of the worst elements of Trump's behavior and character that, that's really gone beyond the kind of thing that a political judgment requires, well, okay, is this, how, is this the lesser of two evils or is this a, a flawed person in defense of a good cause? You know, those kind of arguments have been made, of course, throughout the Trump era and, and people can have reasonable debates about those. But to put some of these theological categories and expectations upon Donald Trump and, and to sort of elevate the cause of Trump to the cause of Christ, there's a very strange mix of politics and theology that's found its way into a lot of churches. And you've got these evangelical leaders who have so convinced their congregations or the, the lay people of the church that a democratic administration is such a disaster that they're prepared to believe any lie, no matter how outrageous that asserts that Trump rightfully won on a landslide, as both Trump and Metaxas claim, that the effort to deny him is an enormous evil and that, therefore, any action necessary to continue Trump's time in office is justified. Now, you know, it's a, it's a very small minority of Trump supporters that were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And it's a minority of them that charged the Capitol. But the, the challenge is that if you took the rhetoric of some of these leaders seriously, that's what you should be doing. And, and the level of irresponsibility, particularly religious irresponsibility, is really striking. And I I think of another person just just saw today, Franklin Graham, who said that those 10 Republican representatives who voted for impeachment, uh, he wondered what the 30 pieces of silver were that Speaker Pelosi had promised for their betrayal of Trump. And and so, okay, the metaphor is not difficult to work out. Uh, Trump is Jesus Christ, and those Republicans that voted to impeach him are Judas. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about the piece
1: you reference is just Rod Dreher's uh, commentary. Rod Dreher's written a great uh, book uh, titled Live Not by Lies, in which, probably better than any contemporary author, he identifies, rightly identifies, and, and takes seriously the, the evil of totalitarianism, goes back and talks about uh, the workings of totalitarianism in the Soviet Union and the danger of totalitarianism present uh, within a modern Western democracy today. And we could point to a whole bunch of headlines that are pointing in that direction as well. So this is not an individual who, who thinks that uh, the challenges that are before the 75 million people who voted for Trump uh, are easy and light, uh, or that this is a welcome uh, movement or development in American politics. Towards a hyper progressivism. This is a it's an author in Dreher, right, who sees you know where political correctness and, and where woke culture will take us and, and and move us in the wrong direction. But but the response to those people who make idols of progressivism in this world is not to make idols. Right of right politics in, in this world, uh, but to, to want to move forward and to engage one another in the setting of a constitutional republic where the rule of law is supreme, not the empire of men or the empire of one man. There's a great line, that Used this past year from Calvin Coolidge's um, autobiography is that if anyone thinks, right, that the country cannot operate without their own person, they're guilty of undercutting the spirit that made the American Democratic Republic so great. And that's what's happened in making Trump an idol over the last month or two. Do I think that there were election irregularities? Yes. Uh, Do I think that the mainstream media does not present a fair accounting of the way the world works, of Republicans, of conservatives in general? Yes. But is there a way to work against that constitutionally in a Republican way where the rule of law is emphasized over and over again? And I think there is. And I think, had that been done more uh, over the last four years, and in particular over the last four or five months, uh, this was an eminently winnable election uh, that was lost because we won in a different direction.
0: So Jerry writes a second piece in that last week where he talks about the pathway forward uh, along the same lines that you were just describing there, Dave. And he points back to the civil rights movement and the willingness of the leaders of that movement to pursue a nonviolent path. And we talked about this last summer. And the power of that example, and of course, the challenge of living up to that and being willing to take what comes with that, the the dangers, the harms, the the physical abuse, the verbal abuse, and all the rest. And he asked this question at the end, which I think is a, a pregnant question worth thinking very seriously about. We need serious strategy. We need serious leadership, moral, disciplined, driven by love, not hate. The question is this. Who is the Martin Luther King of the deplorables? Do we even have the culture on the right, especially in the churches, capable of producing an MLK of the deplorables? And I think that, that part about the church in particular is a, is a really important question to consider. right? The, if, if the evangelical leaders that are most famous are adopting this militant Christian nationalism and are abandoning the meekness of the gospel, where is that example going to come from that would allow for what turns out to be actual success, right? This isn't a a pathway to surrender. This is the pathway to success. That's the argument he makes in the evidence of history, the patient trust in God and the pursuit of justice by just means actually sometimes works, and and it's worth trying.
1: Well, I'm an optimist, and I, I do think we have the culture uh, on the center-right and some in the center. And I think their culture can be there, is there, in many instances in the churches. And I, and I do think um, that, um, that we can revive this, because I think that there are many people uh, among those 75 million who voted for Donald Trump who are ready uh, to, to move that way forward. And I, I think it'll take something like understanding the crisis that we're in and how we got here by reading a book like Democracy in America and then asking the question, what does it mean to, um, to embrace the spirit of freedom and embrace the spirit of religion uh, and to do so understanding how those two things work together, have worked together uh, when we've been at our best as a nation and how they might work together in the future so that we can um, have some, some level of calm and peace uh, in the 21st century and beyond.
0: So what's our assignment for next week, Professor Corbin?
1: So we're gonna move forward to pages 45 through 65 in Democracy in America. If you don't have the Winthrop Mansfield edition of the book, uh, those pages amount to reading chapter three of uh, part one of volume one titled, The Social State of the Anglo-Americans. Chapter four on the principle of the sovereignty of the people in America. And then chapter five, the necessity of studying what takes place in the particular states before speaking of the government of the union. There's a section there in chapter five that deals with the township in New England. So I think we're gonna see in that portrait that Tocqueville gives us of the sovereignty of the people. uh, Part of this idea is how how we might move forward and have a culture on the right uh, that is communitarian, uh, that is driven by communion, uh, by proximity, by independence that might get us to a better place. So that's, that's the reading for next week, Matt.
0: Great. Well, as, as men of the people, we like to end the show with a little bit lighter, a couple of segments, a little more fun. And so we are bringing back the Grey Book for season two. Snowed in Texas last week, Dave. Did you get a chance to enjoy that? We saw there were seven inches in some places. I don't know what you guys got.
1: We were actually leaving Texas on Sunday and drove through uh, Highway 10 heading west and drove through two or three inches and about half an hour into our drive i got a call from my great neighbor Stu, and he's like listen i know you're from new hampshire and you know how to drive in this stuff but no one else around here does so be careful <laughs> <laughs> so uh texans don't uh, uh criticize texans too often but but maybe when it comes to snow that's a that's a good call but it, yeah it was great it was great to see snow the kids were happy about it and We don't get much snow here in California other than what we see uh, on the mountains behind us. So not in, not in sunny Pasadena though.
0: It's funny how different it is from place to place. When we lived in Washington state, you know, pretty far North, but not a lot of snow two inches was enough to cancel school for often several days, New Hampshire, right? Six inches. You might get a two hour delay. I mean, they, they start running those plows the the moment the first snowflake falls and you go down further south. I remember DC shuts down at the first snowflake. They're done for a week. So, you know, it really depends on, on your experience. And it is funny, you're kind of fish out of water situation. You know exactly what to do. And you've got all these people around you that are probably fishtailing and, and not, not sure how to handle it. So what we're going to do is, is talk about snow day activities and think about how to grade some possible ways to spend your snow day. If, if you've got an unexpected snow day in Texas, what do you do with it? I got three options for you, Dave. See what you grade. You'll assign to each of these. The first one, sledding classic I know growing up that was what we would always do we had a big hill by our high school and you know tons of kids would would all usually by late morning early afternoon congregate there and all be sledding down that hill nothing better a plus
1: plus so the the first thing you think about is where you're going to go sledding that's from growing up in New Hampshire so same thing happened when we lived in Pennsylvania just a a great great fun uh, as as a kid and as a parent as well uh, with your kids so a lot of fun
0: yeah, I once actually got on the front page of the local newspaper because I was sledding my, my best friend and I were were sledding and the cameraman came out the local color story and and for whatever reason he snapped a picture of us and and there we were my first my first moment of immortality I'm gonna give that an a also uh, so movie marathon right maybe, maybe it's a little cold you know and you think oh, stay inside cup of hot chocolate pull out some classic movies what about that I'd
1: give that a B. I, I think that, you know, if it's a classic movie, that's a good thing. We have had a hard time finding good movies recently. I'm, I think we're on everything net, from Netflix to Amazon Prime. So uh, and it seems like we've seen most everything, but movie yeah. marathon B in, in the good old days. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's been tough because there's really no movies coming out. So <laughs> it's just same old stuff. Yeah. You know, my wife and I, every Saturday night, we have a, a movie night together and we always spend the first 20 minutes like, okay, now we're we going to watch, right? We need, we need, we need someone to give us a list. We've, we've like, she's posted some Facebook, give us some ideas. You know, we watched everything. Is there anything left, left to watch? I think my, maybe my grandfather had it right when they gave away that VCR after a couple of months. <laughs> what else, what else is there to watch? So I'll give that a B too. You know, I, I can enjoy that on a, on a snowy day when it sort of feels like, yeah, it's nice to be inside. And just kind of enjoy the scenery out there after you've done all the shoveling, and just kind of settle in and get a break from other activities. Last, probably least, Zoom school. You know, what they're saying these days is there may not be any more snow days, right? Now that everyone's learned about Zoom school, they may just say, sorry, kids, you know, fire up the computer. We're going to keep going anyway. We give that
1: a D, D minus. I, I love June as much as anyone else, but kids... <laughs> Kids these days need to get outside. Uh, They need to uh, have them sled uh, for three or four to six hours, maybe come in and watch uh, one movie. But uh, we all remember that experience of seeing the snow come and say, no school today. I get to do what I want. Um, uh, The good spirit of freedom kind of running through the eight-year-old soul.
0: Yeah, there's something about that unexpected snowstorm that, wow, wow. I mean that test I wasn't really ready for I get an extra day or whatever it is you know and you just kind of enjoy the moment and even though you know you have to make it up because I grew up in Pennsylvania that meant well then the next holiday they're going to cancel or extra day in June and you'll be resenting it in June when you have that extra day of school but in that moment boy there's something glorious about being able to just have this found day off so Yeah, I'm going to have to grade that one, though. I'm going to give it a C-. There is that rational part of you that says, yeah, better January 15th than June 15th, but not in the moment. Like Jubilee, right? The the 15th year. That's right. Exactly. All right. So now we wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Hate to do it, but I'm going to have to share with our listeners our final records for our fall sports picks. So I closed the season 33-30. And one, we actually had a, last week, there was a game that hit right on the number. So we both got a tie on that one. I probably better than than usual, but uh, 33-30 and one. Dave, you finished up 22-41 and one. So combined, it's not super good. Um, and, and so we're going to go back to a little bit more of a week-to-week format for our crystal ball. But this is a big weekend coming up. In the NFL with the divisional round of playoffs. So, we are going to make our picks for those four games and then the rest of the way, looking down even to the Super Bowl from there. Just as a quick reminder again, somewhat unfortunate back in July, uh, Dave, you predicted the Patriots would win the Super Bowl over the Saints, and I predicted the Ravens would win it over the Cowboys. Uh, we each do have one team alive. Probably not the favorite at this point, but but, but reasonably alive. Um, but our other pick, not so good. Cowboys and Patriots, not anywhere in view. Our first game on Saturday, Rams at the Packers. Packers a seven-point favorite at home. Rams coming off an impressive win over the Seahawks, but also the team that lost to the Jets in Week 15. What do you think, Dave? I take the
1: Packers and give up seven points here. I, I think that this may be a blowout Uh, Rams have a great defense but uh, jared goff has not looked good last month so i would uh i I think the packers you know at least by about 15 or 20 points here
0: yeah i agree with you i'll take the packers and the points i think maybe not quite uh, as wide a margin of victory as you're saying but i think it's going to be a a comfortable packers win all right second game on saturday is the ravens at the bills bills just a two-point favorite Ravens had a nice victory last week against the Titans. Uh, Lamar Jackson's first playoff win. Bills, of course, beat the Colts. Josh Allen's first playoff win. So we've got these two young, impressive quarterbacks and two teams that I think have pretty substantial ambitions here. It's, it's going to be tough for either one of these to lose. Uh, Josh Allen's been great. I, I think then the, the Bills have been great all year. I just think
1: it's one of those years where they're not quite there. They'll, they'll get there. They're moving in the right direction. And, they got their first playoff win. And on the other hand, I see the Ravens just coming in. Their playoff experience to Harbaugh is a good coach. They play hard. And as a Patriots fan, I've, I've faced too many losses to the Ravens in the yeah. playoff, uh, playoffs to, to not pick them here. So I think the Ravens pull off an upset here.
0: Okay, I agree with you on that one too. I think I think the Ravens will win. I think it'll be a great game. I'm I, I expecting something in probably 34-31 kind of game. But I think it'll be very entertaining and yeah, Josh Allen's going to have his day. I think the Bills are, are building something pretty special, unfortunately, for the Patriots. But it's probably not this year. I think the Ravens have maybe arrived a year or two earlier in terms of hitting their peak. Sunday, first game is the Browns at the Chiefs. Chiefs are a 10-point favorite. If you watched the first quarter of the Browns against the Steelers last week, you didn't have any idea what was going on. All of a sudden... Everything falls apart for the Steelers. The Browns scoring seemingly every other play, 28-0. After that, a bit more of a competitive game. Can the Browns keep that going, or was that a moment of magic that the Chiefs will put quickly behind them?
1: A moment of magic that they'll put quickly behind them. Uh, Playing the Chiefs is a little bit like playing Alabama. You have to score a touchdown on every possession to keep up uh, with Mahomes. I don't think the Browns will be able to do that. Uh, I think the Chiefs will um, win uh, by, once again, a large margin. I think the big blowout victories this weekend, uh, 15, 20 points anyway, will be the Chiefs and Packers.
0: Yep, well, I agree with you again. So for better or for worse, <laughs> we're on the same page on these. I think, I think this will be that, that big, big win. I, you know, The Browns had this, this great memory. It's great for their fans. But I think sometimes that can be a trap for the next game, you know, the, the, the natural letdown that follows the chiefs are waiting for him. They're ready. They're, they're primed. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if this is, you know, 35 point spread. Maybe it doesn't finish that way with some garbage time scores, but I think, I think the chiefs will do to the Browns, what the Browns did, at least in that first quarter to the Steelers last game. Be curious to get your thoughts on this one, Dave bucks at the saints saints are favored by three. We've seen Two high-profile matchups between Drew Brees and Tom Brady earlier this year, both end with pretty substantial Saints victories. And, you know, to be fair, Tom Brady has been okay on the road historically in the playoffs, but you know, he's made his living, obviously, at home, 20-4 and 4 over the years at home for the Patriots. And then, of course, as as the champion in six of his nine Super Bowls, only played nine playoff games on the road so far, and he's five and four in those nine. Uh, do the Saints have, have his number, or does Brady have something special for us once again? I think a close game here that,
1: that the Bucks pull out, I think they're going to defeat the Saints. It's hard to beat a team three times in one year. It's hard to beat Brady three times in one year, likewise. So I, I think that um, he'll study that defense. Uh, I think Tampa Bay is uh, is okay on defense. They're, they're not going to give up. 35, 38 points to the Saints. So yeah, I, I think that I'd take uh, the
0: Bucks and the points in this case. Okay, well this is one where we disagree. I think it's going to be the Saints. Just uh, a stat which I think maybe help explain some of the Saints' success against the Bucks. Uh, Saints have a you know blitzing defense and a lot of put a lot of pressure on the quarterback. Brady was 22nd against the blitz among quarterbacks, and all the quarterbacks behind him are no longer playing. So this is you know, I know historically one of his weak points under pressure, he, he has a more difficult timeout true of all quarterbacks, but, but it seems like that's especially a, a point of weakness for an otherwise incredible quarterback. I'm going to take the Saints and the points, maybe a four or five point win. I think it's going to be close. I think there's going to be a chance for the Bucks to win, but I don't think first year Brady with this new system is going to do it. I think next year might be their year, the final hurrah. All right, that's the four games this weekend, but now we have to pick at least the winners of the conference championship games and the Super Bowl. I would say the Packers beat the Bucs uh, at home in Green Bay, uh, and
1: uh, I would say the Chiefs beat the Ravens, and that we have a Super Bowl of two number one seeds, and that the Chiefs repeat. Uh, so there are a lot of talk of dynasty uh, after February 7th.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. I think that's very possible. I'm going to take the Packers over the Saints. I'm going to call the upset Ravens over the Chiefs, partly because I, I picked the Ravens, make the Super Bowl before the season started. I actually said win the Super Bowl, but I think the Packers will actually beat them in the Super Bowl. So I'm going to take the Packers, win the Super Bowl, over the Ravens. And the Chiefs dynasty has to wait at least one more year. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Good to get back into the swing of the podcast Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget. We are also on Instagram at democracy in America today, and you can contact us by email democracy in America today, all strung out together at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to talking to you next week.